What is up, my dudes? It's Diana, and this is the very first edition of Geek Talk, where Mr. Joe Bob follows through with his commitment to be my co-host. Although, <laughs> as you're listening, you're going to realize it didn't really work out that way. Uh, we were in a room with our very first guest, Mr. Frank Hennenlauter, and I had a whole list of questions submitted by the Mutant fam. Thank you very much for those. But before you even set up, these guys just started catching up and shooting the shit, and it was just too amazing to interject. So I just kind of turned it on the pod, handed them their mics, and said, go with it. So what you're going to hear is just two old friends who happen to be titans of terror <laughs> chatting amongst themselves, really. Um, and uh, with Frank's assistant, Mr. Albert Cadaver, and I kind of just cracking up in the background, which you may or may not hear because we weren't really on mics. <laughs> but it's it's amazing. And uh, I did get to ask one question at the end, which was the most submitted question concerning Zachary, which ended up being very sweet. So stay tuned for that. And thank you for listening. Oh, and thank you to everyone who's who's reached out to me concerning the last pod I posted where Joe Bob and I were kind of drunk and just being open and real about, I don't know, mental issues, I suppose, social anxiety, BDD, and whatnot. You guys have just been amazing. It's kind of scary to be that open, but the response is just heartwarming. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening and enjoy Joe Bob and Frank Hennenlauter. What? All right. All right. Let's just let's just she's go, saying, y'all. She's saying she'll do the intro later, so she can go. I have one here, one of the biggest assholes in the industry. Oh my this god! Guy, this guy. This is a. He's on to me. Yeah, they're both on. <laughs> let's do that. Okay. All right, Frank. The last time I saw you, I think publicly, the last time we were publicly together uh-huh. was at Anthology Film Archives when. Um, uh, uh, when um, uh, uh, the Wizard of Gore oh, right, right, yeah. came out, yep. and we did a big presentation, and we talked about Herschel when Herschel was still alive, Herschel yeah. Gordon-Lewis, right. and um, that documentary is actually something that I still direct people to when I say, you know, if you want to know all about Herschel Gordon-Lewis, but you do not want to sit through all of Herschel's movies, <laughs> you know, the way to do yeah. that is to watch the Wizard of Gore, the Herschel Gordon-Lewis documentary, that was um, uh, directed by Frank Hennenlotter. Co-directed. But I, co-directed by co-directed because Jimmy I think you started out with Jimmy Maslon. Right. And right. What, what was the story on that? Jimmy couldn't finish it? or He shot most of the footage, but uh, whoever they had to put it together didn't know how to. So, yeah. I, so after they were working on it for a year and two years and three, and it got to be like 27 years or something like that, finally Mike Verani, <laughs> who had put the money into it, calls me up and he said, hey, I saw it, I saw a piece of it, I'm in real trouble. And he said, can you take a look at it and see if you can do a, quest, a quick fix? Well, you can never do a quick fix on anything in the film. I saw it, and I just thought it was unreleasable, but I looked at the raw footage, and I thought... There's great stuff in there. And I said, I can fix this, but let me take it over. You know, and let me put, I'm going to change the structure. I'm going to change the whole, where it's going. I changed everything about it. And I just, not, not to make it mine, but just to make it flow easy and make it a Herschel film. No, it is a great uh, uh, it, it is a great primer on Herschel Gordon Lewis, yeah. and let's talk about Herschel a little bit because 
he was, uh, I think, you and I together sort of, sort of um, brought Herschel out of obscurity in the early, you first, I mean, well, because you, you took him to the uh, Waverly Theater. No, we, we brought him to New York. Rick Sullivan and myself were involved with bringing him to his first public appearance. And this is uh, right before I had, I had made Basket Case, but it wasn't released, so it's maybe 1980, maybe 80, yeah, maybe eight, 1980. Club 57, the legendary Club 57 now, which Museum of Modern Art even didn't exhibit on this place, which, good, good God. <laughs> and, uh, and we brought him there, and it was a great crowd because the people that showed up all wanted to, all had read Fangoria and all the stuff there. And, and people knew who he was? Yeah. In 1980? They did. And we showed my personal print of Wizard of Gore on 16 millimeter. And okay. that was his first time out. And uh, um, What was his attitude? Oh, I, it was terrible. He was, <laughs> listen, Herschel was great in front of a crowd. Yeah. But he, I don't know, he just, he, he, he took it, I don't know if he took an instant, I'm trying to say, I think he just took an immediate disliking to me, which over the years um, finally abated. It, you know, went away. I think he thought his audience, he thought, Fans of his films were idiots, you know? So he thought I was super idiot. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and I had also direct, uh, dedicated Basket Case to him. So he really... Bad. No, anyway, we're, we're, as we're driving from the airport, he is in the front seat, and he turns to me rather contemptuously. And if, if, if you've ever had a deal with Herschel, not in the public, but behind the scenes, he was a real cutting guy. And he turns to me and goes, so Frank, why do you like my films? <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, be, because you're the worst filmmaker ever met. I mean, what am I going to say? Because they, they're jaw-droppingly awful. I got to bring this guy up. I, I didn't know what to say. So I said, you know, you're on the spot. And I said, because your films had audacity. <laughs> they were complete. They were so ordained. I mean, you did the fr you did this, you did that, you did. And I mentioned a couple of things, and then he turns and all serious and goes, "You're very wise." <laughs> so now, now we get into we, we're at Club Fifty Seven, and I'm sitting there, you know, with everybody else. He's up there telling. He says, "You got to remember something. We never had money, but we had one thing. We had audacity." <laughs> <laughs> And I could have dropped dead. I'm thinking, I've waited my whole life to meet this man, and here he is quoting me. And I'm thinking, there's no witness. Wait a minute. There is a witness. Ilza, my you know, gal pal at the time, drove us from the airport. And I'm thinking, where is she? And I turn around, I'm looking through the crowd. I'm going, where, where? And I see her. Remember that face Lucille Ball used to do on I Love Lucy when she was, like, shocked? She'd go, Aah! And there was... You know, <laughs> so I thought, okay, all right, I'm, you know, so that says a lot. Um, well, I had a similar experience with Herschel because Strand Video released, um, um, was the first to put out all of his films on video, and I was the host for the series, and so I had, so in order to prepare for that, I went down to Plantation, Florida, I, I said, can I come and, and, and interview you briefly, you know, Herschel, he said, sure, you know, come by the condo. Uh -huh. so I go into, I go into his condo in Plantation, Florida. And first of all, he whispers, you know, uh, we need to go into this next room because, uh, 
the wife doesn't really like this aspect of my of my past life and yeah. and so he like takes me into the into the room where the wife can't hear us and uh and uh and 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 same thing he says okay what are you doing with these films and he said we're releasing them on video and he says why <laughs> And I said, uh, well, because, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, because of the innovative things that you've done, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, we feel like there's a cult uh, a market or, a, you know, a camp market. I tried to use the best word that, you right, know, right, right. and, um, and then I said, so we're doing it for you and, and uh, Doris Wishman. And he says, and he says, you're putting me in the same category with that woman, <laughs> and I said, "Well, not really, not really." Her, you know, I was like backtracking. You know, it's like, "No, no, no, not really." It's two separate, totally separate things, but it wasn't. You know, but it's like two totally separate things. And so he was, and actually, you know, to finish later, I went to see Doris, and she said the same thing. She said, "You're putting me in the category with her." Like, 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 yeah. And so now later, as time went on. And I would see him at conventions and places. I would, I would, uh, I, I wrote a chapter of my book, profoundly disturbing, uh, 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 about blood feast. And in that in that book, I pointed out some things about Herschel's directing style, his his tendency to lock down the camera in a in a in a in a, in a uh, you know in a in a in a in a uh, long shot you know and and things like that and I said so you know so and I had a I had a line in the that sort of concludes the thing you know it's like even though Herschel did not understand some of the principles that were invented by D.W. Griffith uh, <laughs> uh, you know he 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 had enough of a he had enough self-awareness as an old English professor from the University of Mississippi or wherever it was um, uh, to know of his own limitations and then I quoted what Herschel had said himself he says it's like Walt Whitman you know, yep. it's no good, but it's the best, it's the first of its kind, right. you know. And so I quoted him to, you know, to end the article. So, so I'm at a con, and he says, oh, is this the book, you know, has the article? And he, and he sits at the con, f- 10 feet from me, reads the article, and he brings me, he brings back the book, and he says, and he says, uh, and he says, you know, you're right. You're right. He says, that, that's, that's pretty accurate. That's pretty accurate about my career. And because, see, by that time, he had been honored several yes. times yes. and everything. Yes. And he says, you know, you, you, he says, you're right. He says, you know, we did the, the most we could with mm-hmm. what we had. Now, I don't think he did the most he could with what he had. But no, they because, don't say that. Yeah, they yeah. They don't say that. But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't really, he didn't really, um, I mean, you, you made a movie. You, your first movie, Basket Case, was cheaper than probably uh, any movie that Herschel ever made, but it had, uh, you know, it had style, and so, <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's uh, I I I I I um, loved Herschel as I know you did because he was such a um, uh, you know because as a marketer. He was oh, one of the all-time great marketing I have, geniuses. I have one of his. I have his book called. I think it's called um, Advertising Copy That Sells. 
I think yeah. that's the title of it. Oh, he was the world's leading leading expert on how to write junk mail. Yes. He yeah. gave seminars uh, 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 all over the me, world on junk me. mail. As he's corrected me many times, it's not junk mail. It's uh, what is, oh, it's direct marketing. Yes, uh, it's, a, it's direct marketing. He says, but we'd like to think of it as mail that maybe not everybody wants to get. <laughs> <laughs> but can, but, let me just finish the last time I saw okay. Herschel because it was a full circle. Um, his last public appearance was with Exum Cinema in Philadelphia, where they did an all-day Herschel marathon, and they had five of his films there. And they asked me to be a guest and introduce one of the films. I was thrilled to be there. It was very much a different Herschel from the guy I had first met. He was so laid back, he was so relaxed, and he was genuinely touched by this celebration. I mean, no one was really making money off this thing, and he's just having a, I've never seen him interact so casually behind the scenes, and he treated me I thought I was his number one enemy when we started, but he treated me like a long-lost son. I mean, it was, I was very moved by it, you know? And, uh, I mean, that was, I was thrilled that that was the last time I saw him, see him in that state. I'm, I'm convinced that when he died in his sleep, he had a big smile on his face. That's, that's so true. And I saw him, made like, less than a year before he died. He was still... Such a dapper guy. I mean, he was like in oh, in yeah. his 90s. He was still, you know, in oh, the yeah. perfect. He always had the perfect suit and tie combo, yeah, and the, yeah. you know, and and uh, still spoke with the uh, eloquence of a yeah, yeah. of an English professor. And uh, you would never guess that this was the guy who made Blood Feast and yeah. all the other movies. That he I made. think he realized that the people who were his fans knew the films were terrible. I think in the beginning he was thinking, don't they know these are bad? And I think he <laughs> finally realized, we all know it, and we still love them. And part of the reason is because they're terrible and because they're crazy. There's a whole bunch of reasons. And when his introductions at that screening were more cutting, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, he would just blast it. I was telling him why I love Color Me Blood Red so much. And I was pointing out a little bit of the subtext I thought is in this and that, and he grabs the microphone and says, what the hell film have you watched? <laughs> <laughs> well, the way, the way I always thought of Herschel and, and uh, Dave Friedman is that it's two guys behind the curtain at the carnival talking about, you know, when the, guy, when the guys come up to shoot the ducks with the rifles, uh, make sure that they almost get to the teddy bear. Yep. So you get all the money that you can, but make sure... <laughs> That the, yeah, you yeah. thump the teddy bear a little bit at the you know whatever the whatever's the last thing they're supposed to shoot make right, sure right, you right. thump it a little bit so that they don't get the big prize right you know and I I think like all of their all of their filmmaking planning mm-hmm. was sort of like two carnies working the crowd and therefore that's why they can't have any respect for the crowd they had to like yeah. learn yeah. that like oh didn't I take didn't I take twenty dollars from you in 1968 right. you know it's like what did Dave Friedman do when he retired. He leaves Hollywood, moves back to his hometown of Anniston, Alabama, and buys a carnival. Buys a little <laughs> traveling carnival. He loved that. He, that was his world. And, you know, we were involved with, uh, Mike Verini uh, started Something Weird Video, and I became a partner with that. And Dave was our mentor. Dave was the guy who 
taught us how to do it. And he kept telling us, always, always remember one thing. Sell the sizzle, not the steak. <laughs> yeah. And um, um, I, t- I, I uh, talked to Dave on the phone one time just to, just to clarify because he knows all the carny game. He, oh. kn- he knew every carny game mm-hmm. that you could possibly do and every carny scam that you could possibly do. And I said, Dave, I just heard something very disturbing. I said, there is a carnival game called Duck Pond. And Duck Pond is a little river where these t- plastic ducks go around and, t- and really, really young children, like two-year-olds, pick up the duck and, what, and what's on the bottom of the duck tells you what, what prize you win. And so um, uh, uh, I just heard that Duck Pond is rigged, that you're actually taking, are you actually taking money from two-year-olds? And Dave's answer was, no, we're taking it from their parents. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he says, they're going to buy the toy. They're going to buy the toy. He, he had a whole moral justification yeah. Yeah. for I said, And it's like, you know, that's so disillusioning, Dave. You know, the duck pond is rigged. You know, yeah. two-year-olds are constantly yeah. disappointed so yeah. that their parents have to buy them the toy. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that was yeah. one of our big money makers. He was like totally, yeah. he was totally in defense of it. When we got him in front of the camera for that sexploitation, um, he, he couldn't wait to do it, but he was in very bad health. And twice before we had scheduled to go down there and do it, and he became gravely ill. Um, the first time he, I don't know where they put him, something like this, but <laughs> when he spoke to Verini, he said, oh, I've been in the snake pit. <laughs> okay. The second time, though, uh, everybody thought it was the end. His family was basically telling us, you know, um, Dave was not going to pull through and make it. And <laughs> after, you know, this was supposed to be he's not going to survive the night. Then it was he's not going to survive the next day. And then, you know, a week passed, you know. And finally, this is, and this is true, uh, he calls up Mike Rainey and goes, hi, Mike. And uh, we have been planning what do we do when Dave goes and Mike goes, Dave, is this you? And he goes, yeah. And, and Mike said he couldn't help it. He didn't mean that as a joke. He said, are you calling from heaven? <laughs> he wasn't kidding. He, he, said, that was, he said to me, that's the first thing out of my mouth. And then I thought, oh, gee, maybe I shouldn't have. And they went, no, no, I'm back home. And when are you getting down here to shoot this thing? You know, but he was in very bad shape. And yet, you know, that mind of his, and he's Mr. Encyclopedia. No matter what you asked him, boom, boom. And we filmed him for two days. The first day is everything pre-60s about sexploitation. The day of the 60s, he said, all right, start the camera. Don't ask me any questions. Here we go. <laughs> and, I mean, he was, he was a war horse. I mean, just boom. The only time I had to stop is I went, Dave, we're running at it. We, we, we had, what did you stop for? I said, well, there's a, we're, I can't say. We ran out of the, you know, the card in there that records. So I had to say, we ran out of film. Daddy understood. Right? Okay. But he didn't understand why we didn't have a guy doing sound. Okay. So every, because t- he used to do that in the films. He had the old Nagra. And, and so every time we'd say, all right, roll the camera. Here we go. And he'd go, roll sound. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, well, well, talk, speaking of being an encyclopedia of film, you yourself are an encyclopedia of film. And, um, um, I mean, you, you are probably, um, uh, I mean, I don't know if you're still doing the thing with Mike Vraney and, and something weird and, and, and all that, but you it were... All, you know, when Mike died, there was a little point. He was the company. Yeah. You know, and uh, I had no interest in going on without him, and neither did Lisa. Okay. I mean, you know, she's kept the film, the company alive to some extent, but he was, um, uh, you know, when we knew, and he died such a, such an unpleasant death. death. It, it was so horrible how much he suffered. And it was painful. It was just painful. And, uh, I didn't like to call him at the end because I wanted him to call me because I never knew when he was going to be conscious. Okay. Isn't that terrible? But, yeah. but he was, um, you know, for me, uh, to me, something weird was Mike Rainey. Okay. And I, I didn't, he, I, was, I wasn't a partner with the company. I was a partner with him. Yeah. And the fun we had was finding these incredible films and just going nuts over what they are. I mean that was the fun. I mean, where did I never understood? Where did you, in terms of finding films and being film yeah. film archaeologists, do you actually find the print of the film yeah, somewhere that yeah, no one yeah. has ever yeah, had, yeah, that, yeah. that's sort of lost? It's what only happened? known by through advertising. Yeah, well, a lot of you know he was he, Mike was a, a collector of almost anything. He was any, he was a collector of pop culture. So in addition to these films, his house was like, uh, I, I mean, it was like a museum. He had old toys, old dolls, so, you know. Okay. But for the films, you know, he, had, he was able to acquire a couple of 35-millimeter films, but then we got a lead on, I think, the, oh, no, I don't think. I know where the lead came from. Of course, it came from Dave Friedman. And Dave said, hey, you know, I just found out that uh, Movie Lab, which had been extinct in New York, it had tanked and gone bankrupt for year, years before, still had an underground vault full of unclaimed film. And, you know, when a, when a, um, legally, when a company goes bankrupt, they're supposed to contact all the uh, dis producers, distributors, excuse me. And then, but in this case, most of those companies went belly up. Nobody owned them. Right. So Mike calls me up and he says, listen, there's a vault underneath 10th Avenue or 11th Avenue. I go, you're kidding. He goes, no. And I made a range. We're going to go down there. He says, you get Peter. We're going to go down there. He says, and we're all going to go hunt. And I said, well, what's down there? He goes, I don't know. We had a list. And there were like maybe a list of 20 titles, and we wanted every one on that list. And we couldn't find one of them. Uh, so who knows what that list was from? I mean, you know, Dave sent him a list. And okay. But we down there. And uh, the, the, the whole place was run by the custodial staff, who had no rights. And the yeah. custodial staff basically said, if you want to print, give you know, $200 and just tell us you own it. Sure. <laughs> All right. And it was a real uh, different atmosphere down there. It was like, uh, I don't know, there was no moisture. I mean, you would, you would feel little, I could see little cuts on my finger I never knew I had. You know, it was a real, wow. had a strange smell down there too because... Uh, there was a whole bunch, a section of Russian films, and a pipe had burst on them. No one fixed it, so all these Russian films were rotting, and that's what really? you were smelling. So well, I don't know what year you were down there, but 11th Avenue is where all the sex clubs were in New well, York, and was, they were in the dungeons. Well, <laughs> this was this was under this was um, 
uh, maybe it was under 10th Avenue. Tenth I, I, Avenue? I think it's, okay. I think it was 11th. Okay? okay. Because it was gigantic. I mean, okay. it was like subway platform size, if not larger. Okay. okay. And uh, historian says, "Oh, ignore this area. Good stuff is up there." Well, we don't know what he meant by good stuff because we couldn't find any good stuff. But all the stuff he said, "Don't bother with," was all the sexploitation stuff. Oh, wow. And they were all negatives. We thought they were going to be prints. They were all negatives, which was a bit of a problem because even a short film, maybe four reels of picture and four reels of sound. So now you've got eight 35-millimeter reels that you've got to somehow take out of here. And we didn't know how to do that yet. Okay? okay. But we figured, let's see what's here. And originally, you know, Mike is thinking, $200, I'll get 10 films. Okay. okay. And we're going there, and we're shouting out titles and going, holy crap, Mike, I just found the curious Dr. Hump. I went up on the ladder, and I said, guys, Peter, Mike, get over here. I have a title here I've never heard of. And you have me, ready? The Monster of Camp Sunshine. And they're going, oh, my God. You know? <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, and, and I hear Mike over there going, found teenage gang debs, guys. I've never even heard of that one. Okay. So that was what the day was like. And that we went in there on a Friday night just to yeah. see who was there. And we figured we'd come back on Saturday. And Mike was crashing at my apartment. And all night long, he was sitting up making the list of the ten titles, which was futile. Wow. Because he had a different top ten every time I asked him. I looked at the stuff and I said, Mike, you don't have one title that's in all of these. He goes, I know, I know, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll worry about it tomorrow. So we go in there the he next day. He only had $2,000? He had $1,000 or whatever. To, yeah, 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 yeah. So we go in there the next day. And he didn't say he figured it out, because I don't think he did until he was standing in front of the custodian. And, and he said, okay, who's the, who's the boss here? Who's the, and this one guy says, I am it. And he said, all right. And he, he, wanted to, he moved him away from the others, and he says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. You, you know what I want. I want to come in here, take a film for 200 and, and I know you guys are going to split that 200 bucks, right? And the guy goes, oh, yeah. He says... He said, I'll give you, oh, here's what he said. He said, I'll give you $5,000 right now to take anything I want, no questions asked. And the guy went, well, let me show you where the lights are. Here's the elevator. <laughs> it was that, that easy. As many films as he wanted? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we, I think it was 161 we left with. But, but wow. we weren't out of there yet. We, How did you carry them all that's out? That's the problem. We, wait a minute, here's the thing. We, we knew, yeah, no, we knew that if we came back the next day to get them, there would be a new price. The price, oh, would, you know that. Yeah. All right, because, yeah. oh, they've got money. All right. So Mike already knew Arthur Morowitz, who ran DistroPix Films. Okay. And, we, had, I, and I, we hadn't put any DistroPix Films out yet, but he knew Arthur from Dave Friedman. So he called up Arthur and he said, if you got a truck, I can borrow a rent. And he said, sure. And it was Arthur's son, I think, who drove it in. And that was... Popular. And you got 161 films into that truck? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And that's including some shorts and some that were prints. Okay. You know, but it was big. And, I mean, it, 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 was, it was incredible. And, and it changed the course of something weird because we were going through it. And, like, the night before... And I saw a, a, a negative of Diabolical Dr. Z, uh, a negative of Awful Dr. Orloff, which we took. Uh, you know, I mean, we took Dr. Z also, but I mean, Mike said they're not sexploitation, and I was saying to him, your company is not sexploitation weird. It's something weird. I said, embrace it all. 
Yeah. And he thought, okay. And that was where we started, um, you know, let's yeah. do the sexy shocker line, let's do this, let's do that. And even then, even then, when, as we were turning off the lights and we were ready to go, I looked up and I go, oh, hold it, guys, I see one more. And Mike said, no, no, enough, enough. And I said, no, 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 we have to take this one. And it was cotton-picking chicken pickers. Oh, really? Wow. I, I, we, I, you can't let it go. You can't just walk away from it. He later traded it to Kit Parker or something. I don't know if Kit ever put it out. Okay. It something weird did. We put it out, but it was... Do you know the story on cotton-picking chicken pickers? I just know everybody died, but no. Well, uh, 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 cotton-picking chicken pickers uh, came out at the height of... Uh, 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 hillbilly pop culture mm-hmm. in in uh, the United States, but it was so bad that and it did and it did such bad box office in the Deep South, which is where they thought it would score, that it resulted in the most famous variety headline in history: "Sticks, Nicks, Hick, Picks." <laughs> Meaning, not only is the public sick of hillbillies, but the hillbillies are sick of hillbillies. <laughs> And so that's the uh, cotton chicken picking, uh, cotton yeah. picking chicken pickers is, uh, is, is kind of famous for that. It's an amazing cast, and it is the last film of Sonny Tufts and Tommy Noonan and Greta Tyson and probably a <laughs> bunch of others who probably, you know, and, right, shortly, right. and really did shortly die thereafter, you know, even yeah. though I don't think there's any cause and effect. Right. <laughs> uh, well, let me ask about you then, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a final chapter of this. Um, can we expect another Hen and Lauder film? Uh, yeah, I'm just finishing one that we have had on the film festival circuit. Uh, but each time I see it before, and, and audience, listen, the first time we showed it was at the, uh, what the fest, what the fest festival in New York and it uh-huh. won the best audience, uh, award for best picture. But I wasn't satisfied. I, I, every time I, I've seen it, I want to take something out, speed it up, add more artwork. Or do something. But it's called Boiled Angels, and it's a documentary. It, it, the full title is Boiled Angels, The Trial of Mike Diana. And Mike Diana was this 22-year-old kid who was doing his under, own underground comic books based on punk and Herschel and all this stuff, all this blood, gore, and sex, and you know, deliberately trying to not push the envelope, but rip right out of it and and offend people yeah he sold them through the mail only from other to other collectors of this kind of stuff it was never publicly available in any store certainly wasn't available in florida but oh god at some point they thought he was the gainesville serial killer they were plagued by a guy named danny rollins you know he had committed some really hideous murders there and uh, the story is, and there's a couple of versions of the story which are in the, in the doc, but the version is that one of, uh, that some law enforcement officer in L.A. saw the cover of Boiled Angel Number 6, which depicted a scene of a serial killer, and thought, aha, it, it, ma- it looked like the photos that, you know, the police, so therefore, there's your man. I, I don't know any other serial killers that actually did their own comic books, okay, you know? Yeah. But so uh, they were convinced they had their man. They did a blood test. Meanwhile, you know, uh, the, on, on the local news, you know, we have a suspect for the Gainesville killer, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they did a DNA thing, realized he wasn't him. But they were so offended by the artwork 
especially since it came from Pinellas County, where they were from, that two years, two years later, what went on during those two years? It's interesting. Um, they decided to, this, this kid, put him on trial for obscenity, facing three years in prison. This is a kid who's working at a, as a bag boy in the supermarket versus the money of the state. Right. And it was, uh, it was an incredible trial. And I never knew about it because this is pre-internet. This is 1994. Yes, folks, I know there were message boards, but, <laughs> but there was no dot-com. And I right. didn't know about it. And uh, I had met Mike Diana. And, uh, you know, we hit it off talking about movies and that. And he would come over with Mike Hunchback every Thursday, which they still do. And one night, it was just Mike and I talking, and I said to him, when did you move to New York? And he goes, uh, oh, and he talks, he, he's so unique. I mean, we, love it, we lovingly refer to him as a Martian, but we don't mean that maliciously. We mean he's just, he's his own, he's a, such his own person, okay? Right. And I said, so Mike, when did you come to New York? And he goes, oh, well, after the trial. And I go, trial, what trial? He goes, Oh, you know, the obscenity trial, and I was on probation, and I just couldn't stand it down. And I'm, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, 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 back up a minute. I don't know anything about this. And he starts telling me the story, and the moment he left, I went right to Google, and I'm going, oh, my God, this is worse than he even thought. And then he, well, not that he even thought that it was worse than what he told me. So next time they were over, I said, uh, uh, Mike, I'd like to turn, do a documentary about you. Is it okay? And he went, Oh, yeah, that'll be good. That's okay. <laughs> you know, and he said, I said, well, do you have any? And he goes, he says, I, I, I've got all the news broadcasts. I taped them off from VHS. Really? And then Mike Hunchback said, well, you know, I would like, I always wanted to do a documentary. Too. I said, you come on board. You're the co-producer now. So <laughs> that's what we did. And um, it's, it's an interesting documentary. They actually got a guilty verdict on him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, he served only four days in jail, fortunately. They probated it? Oh, yeah. And among the, the list of things he had to do for pro, if, you know, as a sentence is painfully laughable. Okay? It's, it was almost cruel, but the worst of it. And this a, a judge, a judge in America said he was forbidden to draw anything, even in the privacy of his own home, for a period of three years. Forbidden to draw anything? Correct. Wow. Oh, wait a minute. The legal... No. Let me be fair. He was forbidden to draw anything that might be considered obscene, even in the privacy of his own home, for a period of three years. Wow. Yeah. So, um, fortunately, the material that Mike had, all the news broadcasts, and even the news broadcasts were so unfair... Uh, one of them begins with um, a one-time suspect in the Gainesville killings is going on trial. Oh, my oh God. Oh, my God, yeah. And they still hadn't, I mean, they had just found it. So, you know, the the jury is equating Mike's artwork with serial killing. Right. And they, the, the prosecution brought in a, uh, I don't remember his name now, and I don't even want to say it if I did, but uh, an expert, a psychologist, who basically said, I swear this is true, basically said that... Uh, People who read Mike's art could potentially become a serial killer themselves as a result. Exactly, yeah. No, that stuff goes back, yeah. 
Well, well I opened yeah. I opened the documentary in 1953 with Mad Magazine and William Gaines. Exactly. Yeah. You know? But so, supposedly, su- what? What do you mean? What they call? Them? No, let's not get there. Oh, okay, okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to do that? No, that's, no, that's, no, no, that's incorrect. Yeah. How's that? <laughs> that yeah. um, no, supposedly William Gaines won all those, uh, won all those cases for... Let, for, me, let me correct for that so you can okay. play it. What, what, what you're again, not that I could buy him off, but he was, one, he, was a, um, he was a psychologist that was paid to, to offer testimony at many things and always came up with the... Con- with the conclusion that it helped the side that paid him. Is that fair? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, all of those guys who, test, who testify that media causes violence are yeah. Yeah. of the same ilk. So yes. we're now in a phase of it where we've got everything locked and we're going through some legalities. We have to have every clip, uh, you know, the clips are under the fair use doctrine of the copyright law, but we need before we can get a distributor to pick it up, we need a fair doctor and lawyer to sign off on it, and I've started that process. I'll be starting that process next week. Okay. And uh, although I have had people look at it and said, you're fine, you're, you're no problem. And, okay. Uh, um, and then we've also started the process of uh, getting Mike free. He's still wanted in Florida. He's still wanted? Yeah, because he skipped probation. Oh, he left the state, and so now he's, he so there's fled. still warrants? He, he has warrants in Florida? He what? He, he has warrants in oh Florida? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, oh, my God. You don't skip probation and just show up again <laughs> and go, hi, I'm back. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So, so uh, as I'm talking now, right, this date, September 18th is the next hearing, and it sounds good because they're talking about vacating the, uh, uh, well, I forget the legal stuff, but it sounds like, okay, we may be there. And, okay. Uh, uh, because we want to we want to announce that he's a free man at the end of the documentary otherwise it's going to be pretty grim you know well if you don't announce that he's a free man at the end of the documentary you're going to have nine thousand uh 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 uh, uh, geeky con fans who are going to show up who who are going to you know be picketing the uh the uh, yeah. uh, uh, Florida Capitol or wherever you have to pick it. Well, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and Mike, was, we, when we filmed, we went down to Florida because we wanted to speak to some folks down there who obviously they all remembered the trial, you know, the, one of the TV newscasters and this. But also, I, uh, he wasn't no longer in Florida, but, you know, we had plenty of well-known comic experts like Neil Gaiman and Stephen uh, Bissett and uh, people like that to who were outraged that Mike, that this trial even happened. But I also wanted to know why it happened. I needed to speak to the, either the judge or the uh, prosecuting attorney. Did you speak to the prosecutor? Yes. And he, he was... He Still was defending himself? He, uh, yeah. He, listen, he... First of all, let me, let me preface it. He, he's now living in Austin. He was a complete and total gentleman to us. He understood what we were doing. I even said to him... You know, Stuart, I wouldn't be making this film if I agreed with it. And he goes, oh, I know, obviously. But he didn't back away from a single moment. He still thinks they were obscene. He, they were obscene then. He still thinks they're obscene now, although he knows that no way it could get a prosecute. Uh, you know, uh, he, with the Internet, uh, things have changed. So, you know, it wouldn't have the same thing there. But he really did think it, that was his job to do. He, I, I, and I believe him. I, w- there was no hint of him doing this for political gain or this or that. No. So, uh, um, 
And I think that's important. I, in a weird way, the, the, you know, the prosecution is the enemy. I'm not the enemy. Oh, my God, is that a Freudian slip there? <laughs> Instead of saying enemy, I wanted to say the anchor of the documentary because when you hear that, he's the voice of what Mike was up against. Yeah. And he's still sincere in it, you know. Okay. And, uh, but he actually thinks that Mike should have done jail time. Well, I, that was a question I said to him. And yeah, I, obviously, he asked the jury for jail time, right? Oh, he certainly did. And yeah. I, you never hear my voice on it, except once or twice when there's a fuck-up and you hear me laughing or something. But uh, I didn't hear, um, um, I didn't want to debate any, I told him, I'm not going to debate anybody. I'm not going to belittle you. This, I'm not Michael Moore. I, you know, I, I want you to sit there and tell us your story. As you see it, that's that. And I, but right before we did it with Stuart, with, I mean, Stuart Baggerstein, you I mean, here he is, a, a, a prosecution attorney, I said, right before we did it, I said, remember, Stuart, I said, you're not under oath. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed, too. So it was, he was very relaxed. He, you know, it, okay. it, it worked out. Um, but anyway, that's uh, hopefully that. Well, well be, I look forward to it. And the title again is what? Boiled Angels. The Boiled trial. Angels. Because his name of his, name of his comic was Boiled Angel. Okay. So we called it Boiled Angels, The Trial of Mike Diana. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Um, it's good to see you again. As always with you. Okay. And uh, um, I feel like I should ask at least one question. <laughs> so I, I actually put out on Twitter what people wanted to know from you. And the number one question was, what is your relationship or was your relationship to Zachary since he made appearances in two oh, of your films? Oh, Zachary? Well, yeah. Um, and you should talk about this too, of course. Uh, uh, you know, it was a great one. Uh, I mean, you got to remember, I was like seven years old when Zachary appeared on, maybe seven or eight, when Zachary appeared on New York television. And uh, when Universal sold all their monster movies back then, they sold it in a television package called Shock Theater. And right. it was the first time all these stations across America, hey, tonight, kids, we're showing Son of Dracula, you know. And uh, they all had horror hosts, but the greatest and the best was John Zachary, mainly because he appealed to both kids and adults. And he was genuinely funny he, and, and very charming and warm. And I used to watch it, and I would watch the stuff with my dad. My dad taught me about this stuff, and my dad was great in making me understand it. You know, we'd be watching The Wolfman, which was very upsetting to me. Not because he was a monster, but because he was a nice guy who was, you know, and he would say to me, Frankie, don't get upset. He said, remember last week when we watched The Mummy? I go, yeah. And he goes, that's the same guy. And I'm like, whoa, really? Like, you can do that? You know, I mean, <laughs> so um, Zachary was the face of all that for me. And I followed him as much as I could on New York television. And then, you know, I was out buying monster magazines as a kid. Famous Monsters number seven, I think it was, had Zachary on the cover. And, I, and that's what attracted me to it. I didn't know that ma magazine had been out already. You know, and I'm going, whoa, I need that. And my parents wouldn't buy it for me. They didn't want me reading Monster magazines, so I had to go to my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure, you want that. You know, okay. And then, uh, you know, I, he was somebody that, um, <sighs> I was disappointed when he left the TV airwaves. You know, but I would always, you know, I would hit, hit I forget what, what he, I don't know what station it was. I don't know if it was PLJ or not, but, you know, occasionally I would. I listen. think he worked on five or six different yeah, uh, yeah, stations maybe, you at know. Time. 
so but when, people remember him at WOR New York, I think. Oh, right? yeah. 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 You know, uh, um, good night, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are. <laughs> you know. Um, uh, anyway, he, um, uh, when I did brain damage, I needed a, an intelligent monster. I didn't want Freddy Krueger, and I didn't want gags. I wanted a, a voice that would be seductive. Remember, drugs are your best friend until they're not. All right? So I wanted the voice of drugs. Come on. I'll help you out. I'll show you things. I'll calm you down. I'll show you pretty colors. Come on. Come on. Let's just do it. You know. And then, and then, you know, hey, buddy, you're working for me. <laughs> so I called a vocal agent, a guy who handles that, and he's going through the list of, well, I didn't know anybody. And I said, I just want a voice that's very serious and erudite. And then he says, then there's uh, John Zachary, and, and I, whoa, back up. Zachary, I said, the same Zachary he used to be on TV? He goes, yeah. He didn't seem to be, you know, like to him it was just another. And I said, what's he cost? And he said, for how long? I said, well, probably half a day. We just have to do, record the voice. He goes, $600. And I said, no, make it 12 1200 because I'm not going to, you know, this guy meant something to me. And when I met him, Jesus, God, and we sent him the script, and he got the joke immediately. He loved the idea of doing the voice of a monster. I mean, it was just, it, he, he loved the fact that he could sing with a beautiful voice. I mean, he had such a great time. And um, before we went to the recording, we, were having, we just stopped to have something to eat. And, uh, you know, everybody says to him, oh, Zach, I'm a big fan of yours. You know? I mean, everybody says. And I said... What I pretty much said now that, you know, I grew up watching him with my dad on the TV stuff. And I said, my two favorite Zachary memories. Uh, one is uh, during I Walked with a Zombie. Um, after the walk, and they're at the voodoo plantation or whatever, that's chanting. The film suddenly cuts from the film to Zachary banging the top of a garbage can, singing Bingo, Bango, Bongo, I Don't Want to Leave the Congo. <laughs> okay, and then during Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, there's a scene in the original film where one of the where's Vasek or something like that, and you see this guy, villager, putting a stick of dynamite in the dam that will blow up the dam and destroy Castle Frankenstein and the monsters. In the TV version, it was Zachary putting the dynamite there. I, as a kid, thought he was really in those movies. You know, I didn't know. So I remember saying that to him, and he was startled by the memory, and he goes, oh, my God, you really are a fan. You know, you, you, you were there. You remember that, you know. So we had a great time with it. Unfortunately, when the film was wrapped, and I was preparing the credits, I gave him a phone call, and I said, how do you want to spell your name? You know, because sometimes it's L-E and sometimes L-E-Y. And he says, well, my uh, SAG card says L-E. And I went, SAG? Because this was a non-unit film, we didn't do SAG. And uh, I said, oh, oh my God, we're in trouble. And the, the trouble was not for us, the trouble was for him. See, we got a lot of pushback when we released the film that somehow Edgar and I had, you know, Edgar was the producer, that somehow we gypped Zachary out of his credit for some reason. Why would we, anyway, um, the truth is that he would have been fined and could be fined heavily, and he could have also lost his union card. So I said to him, oh my God, what do we do? 
And he says, oh, put your name down. He says, you do a great imitation of me anyway. <laughs> you know. So uh, uh, instead, we just put nobody there. And I, uh, that bothered me, because I also wanted to have Zachary in the credits of my second film. So then when we did Frankenhooker, I, I, I needed a scene with a weatherman, just a weatherman. And then I thought, wow, wait a minute. What if I get Zachary to be the weatherman, get him in front of the camera this time as his in, in Zachary garb. And uh, that's what we did. And I remember right before we shot it, he said to me, I'm a little confused. I'm a weatherman? But I said, no, you're Zachary doing the weather. That's all. And he just laughed. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. You know. And uh, just a lovely, 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 charming man. And we, you know, uh, Albert here with me, we went to dinner with him about two years before his death. And I saw him for the last time at the at, at the Chiller convention, that was his final appearance there. And he was in such physically bad shape that I was actually, I thought it was, I was annoyed with his handlers, thinking, what are you bringing this poor man here for? And I said to the one, one of them, you know, he's really in no shape for this. And he said, Frank, we told him that, but there's no stopping him. He wanted to come here. And then when I saw what was happening with the fans, I mean, he, it, it suddenly like he... He dropped 50 years. He was loving every minute of it. You know, if a girl wanted to take a picture, yeah, but you gotta sit on my lap. <laughs> oh, let me come over here. <laughs> and he was just having the greatest time ever. So I was, I was glad that was my, you know. He uh, also had um, serious memory lapses. And when we went to dinner, he'd forgotten who I was. He didn't know he made Frankenhooker and, and brain damage. He just forgot that night. And he saw a photo, I brought a photo of him and I together on the set. He laughed, he said, well, that's you and that's definitely me, so okay. <laughs> you know, he, he didn't question it. And then, uh, but though on the last time I saw him at Chiller, I thought, I don't know if he's gonna remember me again. And it was, it's kind of painful if he didn't, so I, but I waited till there was a lull in the crowds because he had huge lines. He was probably the most, one of the most popular people. I'd, and I waited and walked up and said, and I said Hi, Zach. I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Frank Henleton, and I did Basket Case. I, mean, I said I did Brain Damage and Frankenhooker. And his hearing was off, and he said to one of the guys, what did he just say? And the guy says, he says he's Frank Henleton, and you did the voice of, and he, and, and he, did, he made uh, Brain Damage. Remember the one where you were the singing worm? <laughs> so, you know, and all of a sudden, I... You know, I mean, I, I could see in his eyes, there was, you know, you see somebody and there's a change in the eyes. And I, all of a sudden he grabbed me with both hands. I said, oh, my God, Frank, Frank, so, oh, my God, I'm so happy to see you again. And, and uh, you know, that was the best way I could have ended my relationship with Zachary, you know. Although we went to his memorial service, and, it, and that was uh, just to pay our respect, because, uh, you know, he deserved every bit of that. Yeah. So, uh, long story, but it's worth it for him. Yeah. That was an awesome story. Thank you for sharing. And, and, you'll, and you'll cut it out, watch. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the part of the story uh, where you talk, said, uh, you know, he was charging $600 for half a day. Um, uh, I worked with uh, Zachary four times, and um, uh, I remember one of those times he said to me, um, you know, uh, Joe Bob, I can I can see you're doing pretty good here. You're doing pretty good here, but um, you know, 
when you when you when you lose this, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be too proud to reduce your fee. <laughs> you know, this is this was his professional yeah. advice. He says yeah. it's better to work than not to work. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so Words and so work. I can see. And you, you look at his career of of what sixty seventy years of career and and all of the things he did, and you can see like high points, low points. Yeah. But he never stopped working. He well, was always like doing something. Twice a year, he'd be at Schiller. He made a, a bundle, and more than that, every. I mean, he was like I, like I'm saying, one of the most popular. You know, there. And, you know, it was nice to be there, and he'd see me, and he'd shout at me across the room, What are you doing here? Get out of here, young man. You know, it was just, it was just a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah, I'll tell one more quick Zachary story. We, uh, we, we had him, I, when I was first doing uh, my show on the movie channel, uh, we had Zachary come on as a guest. Now, the crew for the show, it was this crappy insert stage where we shot near the um, uh, railroad yards by um, Penn Station. And um, uh, and the crew was these tough uh, ex-Marines from Jersey, and uh, all Union guys. And um, the crew hated guests on the show. They did not want to deal with celebrities. They 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 were this, these were these were blue collar guys. And so you know, if you brought on a movie star or something, it was like they were grumbling from the first. But they knew there were going to be problems all day, you know. And so. But the, but the day that Zachary came, from from two hours before he got there, it's like, when is Zachary going to be here? When is Zachary going to be here? The whole crew, when is Zachary going to be here? You know, and uh, and all of those tough guys on the crew uh, went up and paid their respects uh, uh, to Zachary. And the, the amazing thing, though, was that I don't think Zachary ever quite knew how popular he was. He was... He was not aware. Maybe at the end of his life, I he was. At the end, when but, he saw it with Chiller, because they made yeah. him the permanent guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, a very, very uh, uh, humble man, in spite of the fact that you know the whole world loved him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, everybody did. I don't. I've never heard a bad word about him. I've never heard a bad story about him. I've ever. Everybody just loved the man and loved his work. You know, and I still have. His first record album in vinyl, Spook Along with Zachary. I still oh, have it, yeah. That's before Dinner with Drax. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, in my uh, young, I don't know how old I was then, but I don't know if I was pre teenage or not, but in my young, young boy scrawl on the back of the album in pencil, I wrote Frank Hennen Lauder, which, you know, I mean, this is my record. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Frank. I know you got to get back to New York, but uh, this was great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered. Thanks.